forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do. The Christian imperative to forgive challenged many people this week with the death of Martin McGuinness, with some IRA victims acknowledging that his work for peace compelled us to forgive his crimes. But others, like Norman Tebbett, remain in righteous anger at the murder and mayhem the IRA needlessly inflicted on its victims. But what is the lesson for us in our perhaps less dramatic but no less wounded everyday lives? What are the virtues of forgiveness for those who sinned and those sinned against? In studio this morning, Graeme Finley is a lecturer in UCD's School of Politics and International Relations. Gina Menzies is a theologian and lecturer in medical ethics in the Royal College of Surgeons. And Eileen Finnegan is clinical director of the Phoenix Programme, a sex offender treatment programme run by One in Four. Now we're going to give you two little bits of audio first just to put this all into context. First we're going to play some Norman Tebbett. In 1984 he was injured in the provisional IRA bombing of the Grand Hotel in Brighton. He was staying there during the Conservative Party conference and his wife Margaret was left permanently disabled after the explosion. Here he is this week on the BBC News talking about Martin McGuinness. As far as forgiving um, uh, McGuinness of course and somebody mentioned that um, he can't be forgiven because forgiveness requires confession of sins and repentance. Uh, He never confessed his sins. He never repented. Theresa May said Martin McGuinness made, quote, an essential and historic contribution to Northern Ireland's peace process, playing a defining role in leading the Republican movement away from violence. He, He certainly did play a role, but it was a role which was played out of cowardice and nothing else. And now we're going to hear from <clears throat> Gordon Wilson. He was the father of the youngest victim of the IRA's bombing in Enniskillen, Mary. Here he is speaking the day after she was killed. And his words, I bear no ill will to anybody, which you'll hear in just a moment, were described as the most moving and important words in the history of the Troubles. Here he is talking about Mary. I was bleeding from the forehead. You had hurt myself. But I was assured that she was all right. She told me twice. She told me again, but she still was screaming in between times, and I couldn't understand why on the one hand she was telling me she was all right, and on the other hand she was screaming. When I asked her for the fourth or fifth time, she said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were the last words she spoke. I said, never forget them. But I bear will, I bear no will will to anybody, nor does my wife. And that was Gordon Wilson speaking after the Enniskillen bombing in which his daughter Mary died. Um, so, Graham Finley, this week, I felt there was a contrast between, say, people like Bill Clinton, you know, who was extolling the virtues of putting the past behind us and moving on, and several families of the victims of IRA violence who were saying, no, no, he, where I do not forgive him. Um, what is necessary to post-conflict resolution? Well, there's a lot going on. I mean, again, maybe they couldn't forgive them, right? I mean, sometimes forgiveness is something you just can't do, even if you want to. And then sometimes it's something you can do even if the person doesn't show repentance and confession. And so it also involves remembering. You can't, if you forget, then you can't forgive because you've forgotten. So with all of the difficulties up north, one of the most striking ones is the inability to deal with the past, which is one of the funniest things. And so the idea that the, the future should be what we're focused on keeps getting dragged back into the past. So, And, and many, 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 many societies have tried to deal with this in various ways. And there's largely two ways. There's a retributive justice or a criminal justice model where you set up either a special tribunal. Now you can take them in front of the International Criminal Court. 
Or there's the restorative justice model where you bring people together and a victim confronts perpetrator and and they have a, a contribution from each side. And, and sometimes there's amnesty and sometimes there's not. Um, and in the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for example, perpetrators could apply for amnesty, but they didn't necessarily get it. And, and also, as in the conflict in the North, you know, you have to have all the sides as part of the process. So even in quite, quite terrible circumstances like the Cambodian peace process. They actually had the Khmer Rouge as part of the peace process for a while, backed by um, China as its, its support, supported. Now, the Khmer Rouge were impossible to really integrate into the peace process. But, you know, a former Khmer Rouge member is still uh, the leader of Cambodia and came out of the peace process as, as the, the party in power. So it's a, it's a complex set of circumstances, and sometimes you can do both. Right, you can have retributive justice, criminal mm-hmm. justice, and a truth and reconciliation commission, but it's all about coping with the past. Do you put someone on trial for what they did in the past, or do you expose what they did in the past? You get it out there, you you memorialize it maybe with monuments or at least in a in an open process, and uh, then maybe you can move on, and then perhaps people can forgive. And there've been quite heroic examples of people forgiving, even unrepentant perpetrators, including in in South Africa. And and is that heroic forgiveness necessary to a country? moving on. I mean, I'm just thinking of comparing maybe Nuremberg, you know, versus the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. You know, could South Africa have moved on without it? Could the world have moved on without Nuremberg? Uh, That's a very good question. Nuremberg really did begin the criminal process. And Nuremberg is a very, very interesting uh, thing in itself in that it's an example of retroactive criminalization of acts. You know, the crimes against humanity were not international crimes before they right. they set it up in Nuremberg and, and created the crime, the idea of a crime against humanity. I mean, again, forgiveness was not the process. And, you know, in a way, they, you know, the, the victorious allies could have just shot all these Nazis um, without a trial. But in fact, they had huge legal teams, massive amounts of documentation, um, both as a way of showing that they're not just engaging in, in summary victor's justice, but also by by exposing the horrors of Nazi Germany, they could hopefully have it not happen again. Now, of course, we've had terrible atrocities in so many places, and I, I was looking things up for this show. An amazing number of truth and reconciliation commissions, uh, of which South Africa's was not the first. But, uh, you know, in many ways, you know, the truth and reconciliation commission, some people say it's it's sort of embodied a certain particularly uh, sub-Saharan African philosophy called Ubuntu, which involves the idea of people being uh, people through other people, p- communities coming together and to try and engage in this kind of restorative, to restore the community, which had been broken, right? Um, but I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions have happened all over the world, and, and they all have to, their basis in some parts of the culture which bring people together rather than apart. Um, I Certainly, many of the people I knew from South Africa before, um, you know, democracy, thought that there was going to be a terrible bloodbath, that it was yeah. only going to end in a civil war of, of the worst possible kind. And so the truth, you know, I think it's one of those funny sort of cyclical things. I mean, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission helped cement the new government, but at the same time, without the leadership of Mandela, without a certain kind of attitude from the ANC, it wouldn't have been set up in the first place. And uh, just on Nuremberg, there's an amazing book uh, by Philippe Sands, the international human rights lawyer, called East West Street, about the two lawyers who invented those crimes of crimes against humanity and genocide. And they were both from the same town in Poland, but had escaped it during the war. One ended up in America, one ended up in London. And it's an incredible story for anyone interested in that. So look, Gina Menzies, going back to those two attitudes, Norman Tebbit and Gordon Wilson, I think when I hear Gordon Wilson, you hope that you'd be able to rise to that. And yet when you hear Tebbit, there's something kind of liberating about holding on to it and saying, no, 
No. Well, you know, I think in the context of what went on in Northern Ireland that um, Gordon Wilson's comments were just the most extraordinary. I mean, if there is a contemporary modern day saint, um, it has to be him. I mean, how he could say that the day after his daughter lay under the rubble of a cenotaph on a memorial day of remembrance for those who'd given their lives uh, to preserve peace, whatever you stand on that, but they were young men and women who gave their lives and that was their their day of remembrance and to actually do what was done on that day was I think one of the most horrific acts that happened in the North and then for Gordon to be able to say, in fact I think he went on to say, I bear no grudge. I Mm. mean that was almost superhuman and it's interesting, he comes from a Methodist background and uh, I think the Methodists are extraordinarily forgiving as a community anyway and if they really live out I suppose their gospel values and if you look at the, particularly at the New Testament, um, the concept of forgiveness occurs over 66 times. I mean, the, the, the four Gospels are riven with the, the notion that you have to repent and believe the Gospel. It's almost the opening line of Mark's Gospel. But I think one of the things about it is for for those who seek forgiveness, I think Graham was mentioning it really, is there has to be an, an acknowledgement of what happened. And I think that might be sort of where Norman Tebbett's coming from because there has never been an acknowledgement Really, there have been a few kind of sort of suggestions of we're sorry it happened. But, you know, I'm sorry if I've done something to you isn't the same as saying I did something that was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the missing bit in the whole Northern Ireland conflict, that there are those who need to stand up and say what I did was wrong. And I suppose in the week that's gone by, I feel very powerfully about people like Austin Curry, whom I actually know. Um, whose wife, you know, the the UVF carved their initials on his wife's breast and he hasn't become an embittered man and neither has Anita. I mean, they're both lovely, lovely people. But did you also feel, I felt some frustration and again, it goes back to the biblical thing, the prodigal son, which I was always very frustrated listening to. Most people have been. And, you know, you had Seamus Mallon Mm -hmm. who was where Martin McGuinness was 30 years earlier and he didn't get a mention this week. That's right. I found So that why do those who do wrong and reform get all the plaudits and those who were good all along are forgotten? I, I think that's almost life in general. I think people who kind of get on with it and do their best generally don't get recognition. But when there's almost a seismic move from somebody who did something horrific and then they go to another place. There is, if you like, the the massive media focus on it. But I'm still, I'm a little bit with you. I'm still saying, gee, you have to acknowledge. And there wasn't acknowledgement. I thought it was the most extraordinary statement of Gerry Adams uh, when he said um, Martin McGuinness was a freedom fighter. He wasn't a terrorist. I mean, there were acts of terrorism. Freedom fighter, to my mind, is totally different. And it is, I suppose, a Christian concept. I would absolutely defend the vulnerable. If somebody struck my child and I could intervene, or if I could intervene in any act of violence, I would feel that my right to defend was absolute. But I hope I would never go out and deliberately offend or injure another human being because that is actually unchristian. So, yes, I do regret really a lot during the week that the Seamus Mallons, the John Humes, Mm. uh, the Austin Currys, that they sort of were sidelined. And I suppose what I would say, when their day comes, 
I really hope that the Irish nation, North and South, acknowledge the, the sacrifice and the contribution that they made to bringing about, you know, the end of the horrific violence of, of 30 years and the massacre of civilians. And, you know, it's what we would all say and it's what Gordon Wilson said. And I think that's the most disturbing thing, that Gordon Wilson, he met the IRA. Mm. He went and he asked them why and they never gave him an answer. Mm. Um, Eileen Finnegan, so you run this programme called the Phoenix Programme. Tell us a little bit about it and how these issues crop up within it. Yeah, well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's just very interesting as I'm, I'm listening. I'm, I'm so many things. I've been thinking about forgiveness say, since I was coming on the programme and wondering how many people I forgive and what actually forgiveness means. And I think um, I began in one and four about 12 years ago and it was primarily uh, to work with victims of sexual crime. And I suppose as a clinician, it's very easy to have your empathy, your congruence, unconditional positive regard for individuals that have experienced harm. But slowly the victims began to say to me, I wonder why this happened to me. Mm. I wonder why my father did this or I wonder what happened and I wonder who knew. And I suppose I was there with them and that was all fine and I was trying to help them. But then when they began to say, because I want the other relationship with them. I want the relationship with them that was good. I want the relationship with my dad where we went to the football matches. And I have to be honest, I had to dig really deep. I had to dig really deep because I thought, God, you're asking me to have a conversation with somebody that I don't know that I think you should forgive. So it really challenged myself in my own beliefs of do I actually believe? So was I actually hearing from the victim that actually I want? And also, I think it's very difficult for victims that do want maybe some restorative or repair. That doesn't mean they want to be in relationship with the person. Um, And I think as clinicians and people in this work, we've got to think of what is our own bias? What is our own stance on this uh, and how might we impinge on that if we don't believe that it's possible? And I think there's certainly many levels of forgiveness. And when you were talking, Graham, one of the things that I really realise is that, you know, violence or sexual violence happens in a community. And unless you have all of those individuals as part of the repair, a victim is always going to feel uh, in some way that they that they have done something wrong. So I suppose that's really how the Phoenix programme began. Um, I don't personally believe in the word treatment. I believe in risk management because if individuals, so the the programme began like that is that we offered a space that if individuals wanted to come through uh, a programme where they wanted to, to begin to understand what motivated them to offend, if they could understand that, we felt, well, in some way then if they could understand it, maybe they can begin to even hear the impact on the victim. I've often thought there must be a lot of pressure on sexual abuse victims, particularly as so much of this happens within families. Yeah. The family would put pressure on them to forgive and allow everybody to move on, Mm. that the destruction and the consequences wreaked upon everybody in a family unit Mm. over the crime would be so grave. Do you see that? Absolutely. And I would see it. And that's why our programme has moved into we're doing so much more work with the families of both, both the victims of the sexual crime and the perpetrators. And I suppose that is the part is that a lot of families have really tried to silence the victim. And I think they want them to forget it. Mm. They don't Mm. want to hear it. And, you know, they begin to ostracize the victim. In fact, I was doing a a case recently when I was working with someone and we use a geneogram, you know, in the beginning to look at people's family. And this guy had, you know, he defended against someone he'd gone to prison. And I had gotten information from different sources, you know, we, we work in a very collaborative way with all the different agencies that he'd also offended against his sister. And I came back to him and I said, 
I'm just looking at your genogram. I don't see a sister. And he said, oh, my, my mother said the best thing we can do now is forget about her. Forget about what happened. And even whatever about even the crime, imagine thinking of just eliminating your own sister. And she was the victim. She was the victim. And he, that's what, that was the message from his mother. Go out into life, forget her, forget what happened. Uh, <coughs> if she hadn't come forward and she can't, if she can't get over it. So we would hear that a huge amount. So for a lot of victims, a lot of their difficulty is not just with the perpetrator, it is how the family have managed the disclosure. So that has caused such an impact for them because, you know, they're remembering all the time. They remember every minute of every day. And the worst is they're coming into a situation where people are saying, forget, forget, forget. So without even moving into a place of forgiveness, it's like will somebody acknowledge that this mm. actually happened to me. And I wonder, Graeme, was that the mistake maybe in Northern Ireland politics? And maybe there are other parallels where perhaps there was this gap between the people at the top who, so McGuinness and Paisley were willing to shake hands and we'll move on. But the population underneath, they hadn't forgotten. And you, maybe you see that manifesting itself in elections now and in the polarisation, you know, of their representatives, DUP versus Sinn Féin. When you're compelled to forgive rather than choosing to do it, maybe they don't really move on at all. And that's the thing that the peace walls didn't come down. Uh, you know, the conflict, they remained as segregated mm. as possible. And it's, I mean, I love going to the north of Ireland. Uh, it's a fascinating place. It's got so many beautiful things to go. But it's amazing how you can drive around and you know what what population you're dealing with, right? Yeah. No, even with the most obvious signs. Um, so, yes, what happened, one of the problems with these post-conflict peace processes is the the parties which get rewarded are the really tribal parties, right? So, I mean, we've just seen it in the recent elections up north. You know, what are the parties which are, you know, have benefited from power sharing, benefited from the return of, of, uh, of democracy to Northern Ireland? It's, it's the DUP and Sinn Féin. It's not the Alliance Party. So, and that's the same, that's something you see in a lot of different places. So in South Africa, I mean, again, the ANC dominates the politics, but all the other parties are all, you know, often very much based on people's ethnic identity, um, including different yeah. tribes. In Bosnia is maybe the most obvious version, which is the the institutions, the, the power sharing peace process, it, democratic institutions are organized around your community, around your ethnicity or your, your religious identification. Mm-hmm. So you participate in politics as a Serb, yeah. as, a, as a Bosnian Muslim, as a Croat. And this is very bad both because it freezes out anybody who doesn't have that particular identity, but it also locks people into those identities um, and it, it keeps the people from moving on. And I think we're seeing a certain amount of that up and in the And actually, that, that book I mentioned um, by Philippe Sanzi's Wet Street, he makes that precise point that the difference between crimes against humanity and genocide is crimes against humanity is against an individual. Genocide, it's all about identity, that a group of people were killed because of who they were. And he thinks that's unhelpful in terms of post-conflict resolution because then the victims become wedded to their identity and the perpetrators are all about their identity and they can never move on from that. Yeah. It is all about who they are yeah. and it's not the best crime. And that, and that is a problem. I mean, there are many genocides, even by the, that definition of genocide, you yeah. know, a distinct ethnic group um, have been committed since World War II. But, you know, sometimes people say, look, the Cambodian genocide wasn't a genocide because they weren't killing people because of their ethnic identity. They were killing them because they had glasses or, or I mean, yeah. for the most random sort of reasons. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, I mean, the, there's a there's a lot of issues surrounding genocide. Also, um, 
as a definition, but also the role of sort of gender and because there's so much uh, gender violent based violence and sexual violence in the contemporary conflicts. Uh, and that, you know, has been had to be sort of inserted into the notion of what a genocide is because it was neglected in the previous definition. What did they do in Rwanda? Can you remember what they well, did there? Rwanda is a tricky situation as well. I mean, so Rwanda, um, you know, is basically there was the victory of the Tutsi-led uh, Rwandan Patriotic mm-hmm. Front, you know, uh, led by Paul Kagame, who's still the leader of Rwanda. Um, and the counter-genocide was pretty violent, right? You know, involved the massacre of, of the of people on the opposing side and the opposing community and drove a lot of them into the Congo where um, they perpetrated the most horrendous crimes as well. It was, But you can't talk about it in Rwanda. So Rwanda hasn't really been able to move on, even though right. it enjoys a remarkable level of, of sort of prosperity coming from where it was coming from, a remarkable low level of corruption because of the authoritarian rule of Paul Kagame, which, you know, the people are genuinely terrified. So what they've done is they've tried to obliterate all these distinctions, um, and that's not really working either. So you, you can't identify as either a Hutu or a, or a Tutsi in Rwanda. It's oh, not on the right. cards. It used to be on your identification, which they got from the Belgians, but um, you can't identify as that, and in fact, you can't even mention the counter genocide, uh, because that you know, the, or the double genocide, as it's called, because that's actually a criminal offense. Um, Paul Kagame has imprisoned his political opponents, people who are running against him for the presidency, because of they're alleged to have referred to the second genocide. Um, so, you know, Rwanda is kind of frozen in this. Let's forget we will never make ethnic distinctions again. Kind of mode, um, and it's culminated in an authoritarian rule, which you know. Uh, is not it's not a democracy so it's it's moved on and it's achieved amazing things but it hasn't hasn't overcome the divisions in the first place right a couple of your texts before i take a break if forgiveness is seen as a powerful or christian concept redemption or the redemption story is also an overpowering narrative hence the prodigal son i wonder is overpowering there meant in a pejorative way or in a positive way i'm not sure and andy says forgiveness is the restoration of relationships in christian thinking it takes an offer of forgiveness from the offended but requires an acceptance of wrongdoing too mm. to restore the relationship very difficult for anyone to judge whether or not McGuinness accepted his wrongdoing. Publicly, he never could because of political balancing act. And Gina Menzies, I was thinking about this beforehand, and I'm very struck by the contrast in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, where, you know, good old vengeance and wrath <laughs> feature largely yeah, the, the, in the Old Testament. The day of wrath. Well, there, there is, a, even in the Old Testament, even though the eye for the eye is the one that everybody takes out, there was yeah. also the concept of the day of atonement. Oh, um, yes. And there was this, every seven years, there was a, yeah. a, a sort of a resolution that we will deal with sort of. The, and isn't that the important Jewish festival? Is that young there is, Kippur, yes, the there is of atonement. atonement. Yeah, okay. so there is, and 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 the Old Testament also had this concept of the scapegoat, so that the, the scapegoat, if you like, the sacrifice uh, was part of, I suppose, the the atonement of, of trying to get past the wrongs, you know, that were done. So, so what the, those families of IRA victims have often said, and and you mentioned it earlier, was that it's very difficult to forgive someone who doesn't properly apologise and hasn't atoned for their sins. Yeah. Do you? Is it possible, well, I suppose for Gordon Wilson maybe it was, to forgive without that atonement? I think it's almost impossible because I can, I can hurt you and I can offend you and I can say, oh gosh, I'm sorry. But I don't say, I actually, you know, kicked you or I, I did something awful to you or I hit you. If I don't say, I did that and that was wrong, 
my then saying I'm sorry to me is almost meaningless. I mean, sorry is a, it's almost a cliche. We say it all the yeah. time. But when it's something very serious, it absolutely has to be acknowledged that it was wrong. It was interesting we were talking about genocide and the Nazi war crimes. And uh, from friends in Germany, I know that only in this generation have they managed to talk about it. I think there is that sense of having to almost freeze the current situation to get past it. But if you're a victim of of crime, either at an individual or at a community level, you do need people to, to acknowledge that it was wrong. How can you move forward if you don't say to me what I did was wrong? And I think Eileen is talking about that in relation to abuse. And I know sort of... Uh, people who've been abused and I know people who've been, if you like, abused within their marriage and the one thing they will want is for somebody to say that was mm-hmm. wrong and that releases, I think, a victim to a great extent. If it's just, I'm sorry, that's that's kind of forgiveness but it's forgetting. I think the, the remembering of what, what was wrong is terribly important. And just, you know, to put it in the context of, I suppose, the old fashioned, you know, if you like, or at least the sacrament of confession, it's called penance. It's now actually called reconciliation, which in itself is interesting. But it was, you know, I am sorry. This is what I did wrong. I know it was wrong. I don't want to do it again. And now I much, must make some recompense. I mean, even going back to the Old Testament, the word for debt and the word for sin were actually the same word. So the sense of repaying a debt. So I think if you've done wrong and you don't make some very significant effort to acknowledge it and repay the debt, forgiveness is, is quite empty. And and just another thing, one of the continuous complaints about the HSC is their reluctance to apologise and say sorry for legal reasons. And that's often what drives people into litigation. Exactly, they said, exactly. if, if you had said at the start. Absolutely. I mean, there's a very strong movement in the world that I, I work in in medical ethics is, is the duty of what's called candor, which means that acknowledging something went wrong, because that is absolutely true. Most patients want somebody to recognise that something went wrong. And, you know, it doesn't what we often say with students, is it doesn't actually mean culpability because I have an operation tomorrow morning, you know, I hope it will go well. It may not. It may have absolutely nothing to do with the skill or the competence of whoever's doing the operation. But it makes good practice to go back in and say to the patient or whatever, I'm sorry it didn't work out. Now, that's where there's no culpability. But the problem sometimes is if somebody says they're sorry, there's an immediate sense that, ah, you, you know, you made a you made a an error that's that's culpable. But the duty of candor, in fact, the evidence is that where that happens in medical practice, there's far less litigation. Eileen mm. Finnegan, I know sometimes if I'm being required to forgive someone, I have this sense that well, then they just get away with it. Mm. Um, how important are consequences uh, for a perpetrator in order for them to be forgiven? I think for a perpetrator, but for any one of us, mm. you know, if we bring it into the to the here and now, for any one of us, if there's not a consequence, we will minimise. We will think it wasn't a big deal. And that's what a lot of individuals that offend say, because nothing has happened. It's like, well, it mustn't have been that big a deal because they do think differently. You know, their cognitive availability is different in, in, in they're trying to minimise and rationalise. So I think and it's I often say um to victims of, uh, uh, of sexual violence and other crimes. I have worked, you know, a lot in addiction over, over my lifetime as a therapist. And one of the things that a lot of individuals that offend say, it's really difficult when the victim looks into my eyes. Mm. Right. And I, I hadn't taken that into consideration and I hadn't thought, my God, 
it could actually be a lot simpler than I actually think. It's that whole thing of not being able to tolerate because for an individual to offend, they lose all sense of what is in front of them. A victim being scared, traumatised, they miss all the cues. So when they actually have the time to stop and actually physically look at somebody. And I think just uh, as you were talking there um, and others talking, I, I was just thinking even for somebody to acknowledge that they have offended, there's a whole, there's so many layers that they have to take into consideration. They have families saying, if you acknowledge this, you may never get a job. It's going to be on a record. You'll never get to America. So that we nearly enable perpetrators in giving them so much thought of, look what's going to happen if you actually acknowledge it. It doesn't matter. We'll manage the victim. She'll get over it. We'll do nice things. And, you know, or should we pay for her college or his college? And it's like, you're missing the whole point of somebody was in relationship with somebody, be it a brother, be it a father, a normal relationship, and you have completely skewed their thinking of what a relationship is like. And for the rest of their life, unless somebody actually says, what I did to you was wrong, and I think for a lot of individuals that offend, really getting them to the point, now we have a restorative process in one and four, and we would work, and it takes a long time, and a lot of the time it's not with the perpetrators and the victim. It's more with the victim and their families, because that's really where they're feeling it is it is the system that I have grown up in that won't allow it to happen. And that has had more of an impact. It's had more of an impact on how they relate in the world and forming relationships themselves in ending up in a lot of relationships where there's domestic violence, there's addiction. So it's like it's that ongoing issue. But I think for individuals that offend, what they will always say is, well, nobody actually said it was that big a deal because if it was, Mm. something would have happened. And I think as we move forward, that has to stop. We have to stop as a society of minimising and supporting the offender. And Graham, sometimes Mm. I wonder, are we in a culture where the move on culture? Mm. So someone does something wrong and it can be a corporation, a politician, a celebrity who was drunk and they say, oh, well, I'm really sorry about that. And then we're all to move on. And there's something wrong with you if, if you don't want to move on. <laughs> Which is moving on rather too quickly if you're if you're yes. telling the victim that they, they should move on, right? Yeah. You know, the, 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 the people have to move on themselves. And again, you know, thinking about all these particularly personal scenarios, it's really, really interesting to think about how that works in one relationship. So, again, if someone has an affair or, or someone who commits domestic violence against a partner, those people may eventually stay together and their relationship could, you know, some people classically say become stronger, but mm-hmm. it's never going to be the same relationship. And I, I went listening to Eileen, it's really striking that restorative justice is most difficult, it sounds like, when it's sexual abuse perpetrated within a family, because those are profound ties, but they're also profoundly ruptured, um, which is funny because, you know, some of the other restorative processes, you know, work better for murder and mass mm. murder, even when they're reintegrating child soldiers in Sierra Leone or in Uganda or whatever, um, rather than sexual violence committed within the family. I mean, restorative justice processes have a basis in many, many, many cultures, including the Irish culture, but they work best. And this gets back to the biomedical ethics problem. They work best when you're dealing with stuff, you know, money, you know, and and it's interesting that most medical ethics cases where there's negligence or there's, um, you know, damages being paid out or you have to sue and it's adversarial, whereas, you know, the doctors and nurses weren't intending to do something wrong and it would be a prime case for sort of restorative justice. But in fact, we have an adversarial model. Um, Again, um, many, many sort of ancient societies had to have these processes 
because the alternative was a constant cycle of revenge, mm. uh, which we're seeing in modern I conflicts. I think Brehan Law was Bre- very much based yeah, on exactly. restorative. Yeah. And, I, and I think in Brehan Law, rape was equivalent to murder in yeah. terms of the compensation. And that, that was, was one of the things I was thinking about. Brehan Law, uh, Viking yeah. Law. I mean, there was a, you know, and in various African legal systems uh, all over the place. You see, you know, X cows, X amount of money yes. is, you know, for killing a, a, your father or your brother, a slave, right? You know, slaves not worth nearly as much, right? Um, and, and you're right, you know, sexual violence would have had a compensation even if uh, it was, uh, and a very high one, even if, in, as we were saying, it's, it's a particular kind of crime. And yet maybe nowadays, um, sometimes you might see a, a perpetrator might offer a victim money and that could be greeted actually very negatively. Yes. Why, you think you can write a check and, and this one make it go away? And that's the thing, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it the, doesn't compensate and it doesn't... It's, it's not, yeah. Yeah. not it's the fact that, you know, I can write a check and does that sort of... Uh, is the debt paid, whereas the real debt is, I want to know, I want to hear you saying what you did was wrong. I mean, I think restorative justice can operate very well in certain situations mm. and less so in others. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the victims in South Africa were not happy ultimately about the Truth and, and Reconciliation Justice Commission, which was, you know, probably the best political thing that could have been done. And it did bring about a lot of political good. But a lot of the victims felt that they 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 voiced their concerns. But that was the end of it. So it was it was it was putting an awful lot on the shoulders and the burdens of victims to to live up. And as you say, you know, to, to move on. I think the notion of restorative justice can work very well within within a family, um, you know, with children, if you like, where you sort of make the child realise what they did was not right. Um, I think it can work very well for lesser crimes, shall I say, where both sides are prepared mm-hmm. to look each other in the eye. I think the, the, the further the escalation or the hurt goes, I think the harder it is to say that that's the only model. I think there does have to be different models and I think society does have to see that justice is done. It isn't just a matter of, you know, wiping the slate clean at all costs. I, I think that's that's not going to heal anything. You know, I think just going back to mm. a lot of reference I've been made to relationships. I mean, the whole concept in the Christian Bibles, in, in certainly in the New Testament, is restoring relationships. And that's why reconciliation if you like talking in the sacramental sense, is a much better word than if you like confession and penance, which actually only focused on one element of it. So the the concept is that you restore relationships. It is interesting that all the Christian churches and and the Buddhist community as well, they have a concept of recognising, I individually recognise what I did was wrong. Now, most of the other Christian churches, um, I think other than the Lutheran church, uh, who who have, if you like, private confession and, and if you like a communal one will say within their service there is a point within their service where you're asked to acknowledge the fact that you have not lived up to if you like the values and the standards of your of your own gospel of your own tradition the Catholic one is quite different in that they have this uh, requirement for individual confession um, which you know has has certainly f- um, slipped away and you know the Council of Trent I think did terrible damage to that notion because they talked about the need to confess in in number and kind and I can still remember as a child you know frantically kind of going in my fingers you know did I do this three times four <laughs> times or what, what was it you know what category was it was in and again interesting in the in the Catholic tradition even in the Christian tradition uh, confession 
was only introduced in the 13th century. Before that, you had um, they, they would say that a child under 12 was incapable of committing a kind of so-called, mor- yeah, absolutely yeah. mortal yeah. Or, or venial sin. Yeah. Um, and because I used to think it was silly when I was a child going off to confession and mm. well, I gave cheek to my parents, yeah. which was obviously a regular. And you'd make up, yeah, stuff you'd make because up because stuff. you wouldn't quite know, you know, what what, what to say. I'm sorry for fighting with where, my brothers and sisters. Yeah, whereas the, whereas an older tradition was yeah. about, if you like, to use the, the notion of spiritual growth. I'd go to a confessor and it's interesting some of the other religious traditions have this notion certainly the Eastern Orthodox has a concept that if you want to go and talk about something that you've done you can go to a priest but you can also go to an individual uh, person and that becomes a bit like almost your your um, spiritual GP who will know you and you'll go on a kind of a spiritual oh, growth I, journey. I really like the sound of that. I might <laughs> talk to Eileen about that. Pat says I think if you can forgive you're lucky as you can move on and not have your daily life consumed by the hurt and I think we should probably address that Frank and Donegal says at the scaffold steps not one of the Nuremberg guilty expressed any remorse Nick says we talk of forgiveness Martin McGuinness was brought up in Derry where Catholics and Republicans were seen as second class citizens he fought the way he thought would make an impact and help elevate suffering in the community however misguided Joma Kenyanata Nelson Mandela are seen as peacemakers I believe Martin McGuinness will be seen as one also and Shane says would Gina please offer a view on the notion of medics in the HSE avoiding culpability while knowing full well they are at fault when it results in further known and intentional harm to victims. We've kind of covered that. Just want to come to Eileen. There's a book just out. um, It's written by two people, Thordis Elva, a woman from Iceland and Tom Stranger. And Tom raped Elva when Mm. she was 16. And she contacted him. Mm. She felt she really had to meet him years and years later. It really affected her. So he agreed to meet her. And in his email to her, he said, "Um, after much thought, I do think it will be beneficial and an opportunity for myself to air face to face some long held words and for us both to look to close some doors. I wanted for you, Thordis, as you seem strong, open and ready to see me and move forward. I wanted for me because I'm so very sick of being sick and seeing myself as unlovable and believe I can move on if I could just look you in the face, own up to it and say I'm sorry. And Thorda said in response, forgiveness is the only way I tell myself because whether or not he deserves my forgiveness, I deserve peace. Mm. So I'm doing this for me. So there is this big feeling that Mm. you cannot move on Mm. without forgiving. Mm. Do you agree with that? And it's it's what I watched that video this morning and I had watched it last night and uh, it was obviously coming through my my, my thought process during the night. And, And I suppose one of the things that really resonate what she said is that um, I need the forgiveness, and and also when she heard that he too had been living in that in that he, he you know he said that he it's almost like he put a rope around it and a heavy stone in his offending and hoped it would be buried, but always it was in his life, it was underneath there, he was always aware, and I suppose that's a lovely story in that when she did contact him, that he was and it was five years before they actually physically met up mm. um, and I think that for me you know when I was thinking I thought this is lovely however is that my experience every day mm. is that my experience when a victim first of all discloses and I'd have to say it's not and everybody that comes to the Phoenix programme and I would say this to them because I work in all aspects of sexual violence all of them are coming because they were caught so I wonder what that does to me even in my own belief system and you know it's like I wonder if you weren't caught mm. you know yes you're here and you're saying I'm you know, if there was an everyday statement that I could put a penny for and I'd be very wealthy, it's you've no idea how glad I am that this is out. 
Now, I don't know, to be honest with you, just yet how real that is, because I haven't had anyone knocking on my door to say, I've been carrying around this terrible, horrible thing that I've done right. to someone. So I'm never, until I I can hope it, and, and hope if we don't have hope, we can, might as well just quit. So And sorry, and does it help the victims? Do they benefit from it? I think that if the victims really get a sense of all, in my experience, when a victim, when someone just says, I did something wrong, it doesn't matter if they get into the level. It's, please help me to think that I wasn't mad. Please help yes. me to think that when, you know, I always remember a mother saying to me and it, there's lots of different things, but I remember a mother saying to me, she came on, on the programme, her, her, her daughter had um, been abused. She didn't know who the uh, perpetrator was. I did. I knew it was the mother's son and, and I had the mother and father and we worked and the father was talking about when I find out who it is, I'm going to shoot him and what I wasn't going to do. Mm. So we bit, we came to a part where she was going to tell the parents who it was. And I can't physically, emotionally, the difference in the parents. And it got to a point where these two individuals that had been so supportive of this girl had moved to a place and they said something. And I remember it has stayed with me. The mother said, but you're you're beautiful looking. Your brother was just infatuated (gasps) with you. And I thought, what in God's name? So I suppose for me in being neutral and and restorative justice and any type of mediation, any type of information, Anything is if I really want to hear people, I have to be neutral. I have to really try and hear their lived experience as opposed to my Did idea. the daughter. So she said that to the daughter. She said it to the daughter, you know, as as the, 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 the meetings went on and on. And, and it's, it's amazing because when you start family work, you know, yes, they're very restricted in the beginning. But after a while, they just move into the dynamics of though they forget that there's a, an outsider in there and they just begin to really say the things and you really get to hear. So that was considered an OK thing to say. It's like, for God's sake, you know, you were beautiful. looking. he was just infatuated with you. He was. And it's like, my God, you were so missing that this child mm. is struggling so much in life. And I think that all she wanted was just for him to say, I did it. If you said I'm sorry, that was a and bonus. And I presumably to hear the parents say, Absolutely. and he was wrong. Yeah. He so, shouldn't. Yeah. But there's the system. So for individuals that offend when they say, well, nobody said it was a big deal. And we can all get in and think like moral conscience, like what part of you doesn't know that's wrong. But if you don't want to believe that you've done anything wrong and you're the people around you are enabling it and, and helping you to say and, it wasn't that big a deal. And in the break there, Graeme Finney, we were talking about Bill Clinton. And, you know, he was forgiven for all his various transgressions and is enormously popular. But Monica Lewinsky, who did nothing wrong and didn't even want to rat him out, had to because she was being threatened with decades in jail. She was never forgiven. Um, she's never had a job. And, and she, she wasn't did allowed nothing to move wrong. on. I mean, yeah. she's, this, she carried with, she's carried this with her all this time. And again, yeah, Bill Clinton had a sort of sin big, repent big attitude towards Christianity, uh, which you've got to fundamentally start to wonder how sincere it is. And not a lot, not everyone has forgiven Bill Clinton, but mm. um, it is amazing how, especially in these islands, you know, people mm. feel about Bill Clinton uh, after what was, you know, both in terms of his domestic politics, but also in terms of his behavior towards women and his and his and Hillary's reaction um, left Monica Lewinsky without any other role except for the perpetual sort of... And they had enough contacts all around the world. She could have been given a job. Something could have yeah. been done for her. So there was no atonement there. Yeah, and yeah. there's no restorative justice. Again, 
whether we would have felt any better about it if Bill Clinton had found her a job at the Clinton yeah, Foundation, maybe we'd right? Yeah, worse, yeah. But, you know, she wasn't even allowed to be a victim, yeah. right? Yes. Uh, and uh, she certainly was victimized after the fact. Now, again, these were consenting adults, but, you know, the power relationship was about mm. as great as mm. you can imagine in, mm. in the world. So whether, you know, Bill Clinton's culpability is even greater just given that that distinct power relationship. Uh, is, I think it is what amazing. saved yeah. Gina Clinton probably internationally was actually the behavior of Hillary. Mm. Um, you know, and those, if you can remember the initial kind of pictures of the two of them, there was a big gap when they walked mm. together. Yeah. I can see that image. But that she ultimately for and I, I would and never. Actually, I would Chelsea. never. They used to do pictures of Chelsea yes, between, between them. them. Yeah, I, I would never, you know, challenge her motives. But she did seem to be able to forgive and get past because I think there was a very I close relationship. But I, and I don't know. Like we don't know the the intimacies of that relationship. But it looked as if they got to um, a, a reconciliation where they both could coexist. And I think that helped the world, if you like, mm. view of Bill Clinton that if she could do it then, you know, how can the rest of us uh, crib about it? And I agree with what you're saying about Monica Lewinsky. And, you know, I look in the same context of Eamon Casey and Annie Murphy. Yes, two consenting uh, adults, but, you know, she was 24, he was 47. She was a very vulnerable young woman. She was sent here to be helped. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to judge anybody what anybody else has done, but I think um, the reference oh, I don't to know, power... A bit of, a bit of judgment mm-hmm. sometimes But the, right. the reference to power, I mean, I think if you look at all the horrific cases of abuse with in the church, it is to do with a power differential, which yeah, is often the essence absolutely. of these well, things. Well, look, I'm raging, but we have to wrap this up. We sure. could easily do another hour, but that is it for this morning. Many thanks to my guests. Now, from next week, the show will be on at the earlier time of 8am. If that's too early for you, don't forget, you can always subscribe to the podcast, downloaded from Newstalk.com or from the Newstalk app. Thanks to the team, Stephen Jordan, Aidan McKelvey and Paul Marnock on sound. And thank you for listening.